Emily had always felt a deep connection to the wild. Her heart beat in rhythm with the rustling leaves, and her soul found solace in the melody of birdsong. As a seasoned park ranger responsible for the sprawling and isolated national park, she was entrusted with the task of safeguarding the delicate balance of nature's beauty in preserving its intricate ecosystem. It was a role she cherished, a labor of love that gave purpose to her every step. Her days were a symphony of simplicity, patrolling the trails, monitoring wildlife, and maintaining the trails were rituals that brought her a sense of fulfillment like no other. Emily reveled in the tranquility of the great outdoors, often feeling more at home in the embrace of nature than in the bustling city beyond the park's borders. However, the serenity she had come to know would soon be shattered by a series of unexplainable events that defied the very fabric of her reality. It all began on a seemingly ordinary night. The moon cast a silvery glow over the dense forested area. Emily was patrolling. The wind whispered through the leaves, carrying with it an eerie sensation that sent a shiver down her spine. At first, she dismissed the whispers as nothing more than the rustling of leaves or the echoes of her own thoughts bouncing off the trees. But as she continued on her path, the whispers persisted, growing clearer and more distinct with each passing moment. Emily stopped in her tracks, her senses on high alert. The whispers seemed to emanate from all directions, as if the very forest itself was conspiring to share its secrets with her. She strained her ears her heart racing as she struggled to comprehend the source of the unsettling voices. Doubt gnawed at the edges of her consciousness. Was she truly alone in the wilderness? Days turned into weeks, and the strange and unexplainable occurrences continued to haunt Emily's days and nights. She discovered odd symbols carved into trees, intricate patterns made from stones that defied the laws of nature, and eerie lights that flickered in the distance during the darkest hours. The tranquility she had once associated with the park had been replaced by an unnerving sense of foreboding that seemed to hang heavy in the air. Emily's skepticism, rooted in her scientific upbringing and training, began to waver as the evidence mounted before her. Determined to make sense of the inexplicable, she delved into the park's history. Through old records and the tales of local residents, she uncovered stories of ancient legends that seemed to intersect with the present. Native American lore spoke of spirits that roamed the land and tales of eerie occurrences dated back generations. Haunted by her experiences, Emily found herself torn between her duty as a park ranger and the growing fear of the unexplainable. She confided in fellow rangers and locals, sharing her encounters and finding a surprising commonality. Others had experienced similar phenomena in the very same remote areas of the park. Together, they formed a support network, an alliance born from shared experiences that offered both solace and validation in a world that had become increasingly elusive. But it was during a climactic moment that Emily faced the heart of the mystery head-on. Armed with a camera and a voice recorder, she ventured deeper into the park, determined to capture evidence of the whispers and unsettling occurrences. As she snapped photos and recorded her surroundings, an unexplainable force seemed to pulse through the very air around her. However, her hopes were shattered when she discovered that her camera's drive had malfunctioned, erasing all the photos she had taken. Her heart sank frustration mingling with the fear that had been growing within her. The weight of her quest seemed almost insurmountable, the answers she sought just beyond her grasp. But Emily was not one to back down. Determined to uncover the truth, she ventured even deeper into the heart of the park. Armed with a renewed determination, she faced the unknown with courage. Her steps were steady, her heart resolute as she confronted the possibility that the wilderness itself held secrets beyond human understanding. As she journeyed into the heart of the wilderness, Emily found herself enveloped in an atmosphere that seemed to hum with a hidden energy. The air was thick with anticipation, as if the very essence of the park was holding its breath, waiting for her to uncover its truth. 
In the midst of the towering trees and the eerie silence, Emily's footsteps carried her further into the heart of the mystery. Her camera and voice recorder were her companions, tools that she hoped would capture the unexplainable phenomena that had haunted her days and nights. Hours turned into days as Emily pressed on, driven by an insatiable curiosity and an unyielding determination. She encountered more of the mysterious symbols, more stones arranged in patterns that seemed to defy all logic in the ever-present whispers that seemed to dance just beyond the edge of her hearing. But it was in the heart of the wilderness that she experienced the climax of her journey. As she stood beneath the towering canopy, her camera poised to capture whatever awaited her. The air grew still. A palpable tension settled around her, as if the very world was holding its breath. And then, in a moment that defied comprehension, Emily felt a presence, a presence that seemed to permeate the very air itself. It was as if the wilderness had come alive, as if the ancient spirits that had once roamed this land were reaching out to her. She raised her camera, her hand steady despite the rush of adrenaline coursing through her veins. But as she pressed the shutter button, a surge of energy engulfed her, causing the camera to malfunction. She watched in shock as the images on the screen blurred and twisted, the shapes becoming almost ethereal. The whispers grew louder, voices echoing through her mind, as if the spirits themselves were speaking directly to her. In that moment, Emily felt a connection that transcended time and space. The park's secrets, once buried beneath layers of history and myth, seemed to surge to the surface, begging to be heard. She realized that the wilderness itself was a living entity, an ancient force that held within it the stories of generations past. With a mixture of awe and trepidation, Emily lowered her camera. She may not have captured the evidence she sought, but she had experienced something far more profound. The whispers of the wilderness had become her companions. The spirits of the land had embraced her, and the unexplainable occurrences had become a part of her reality. As she emerged from the heart of the park, her heart heavy with the weight of what she witnessed, Emily knew that her journey was far from over. The unexplainable had become a part of her, woven into the very fabric of her being. And as she looked out at the sprawling landscape that stretched before her, she realized that the mysteries of the wilderness were vast and endless, waiting to be discovered by those who dared to listen. And so Emily continued her role as a park ranger, but now with a deeper understanding of the world around her, she embraced the whispers of the wilderness, knowing that they held within them the stories of generations, the echoes of ancient spirits, and the unexplainable truths that could only be felt with the heart. It was the summer of 1973, and I was 12 years old. My friends and I were enjoying the long, hot days by riding our bikes through the winding roads of Durham, exploring the woods and fields that surrounded our quiet town. Little did we know, we were about to encounter something that would become a part of local legend, the Durham Gorilla. One sunny afternoon in late July, our group of five decided to take a ride down Shiloh Road, a quiet country road that cut through a dense forest. We had biked this rut before, and we were excited to enjoy the thrill of the downhill ride and the cool shade of the trees. We set off racing each other and laughing without a care in the world. As we reached the halfway point of our journey, we rounded a bend and suddenly skidded to a halt. There, standing in the middle of the road, was a creature unlike anything we had ever seen before. It was about the size of a chimpanzee, covered in dark hair, and appeared to be just as surprised to see us as we were to see it. For a moment, time seemed to stand still. We stared at the creature, and it stared back at us, its eyes filled with curiosity and perhaps a hint of fear. I could feel my heart pounding in my chest as I tried to make sense of what I was seeing. Was this a wild animal that had escaped from a zoo or a private collection? Or was it something else entirely? Before any of us could react, the creature let out a high-pitched shriek and disappeared into the underbrush, leaving us standing there, stunned and speechless. We looked at each other, unsure of what to do next. 
Should we report our sighting to the authorities? Would anyone even believe us? In the end, we decided to keep our encounter a secret, fearing that we would be ridiculed or accused of making up stories. But as the days and weeks passed, more and more people in Durham began reporting sightings of a similar creature, and the legend of the Durham Gorilla was born. The sightings continued throughout August, sparking a frenzy of speculation and debate among the townspeople. Some believed that the creature was a Bigfoot, while others insisted it was simply an escaped chimpanzee. As for me, I never did find out the truth behind the Durham Gorilla, but I will never forget that day on Shiloh Road, the day my friends and I came face to face with the unknown. As a kid, I dreamt of being an officer like my father and his dad before him. It kind of ran in the family, so every time I was sitting in the passenger seat of my partner's cop car, it was even more special. It was my very first night, and my partner kept joking on me, ripping on me and calling me a rookie. But I didn't mind. I was very familiar with the hazing process. It was a boring night. My partner made attempts to break the silence by asking me all sorts of various questions. Other than that, it was silent. Not much was happening. We looked around for somebody to apprehend, but to no avail so far. Not much of a first day. We kept on driving with nothing happening until I saw a figure standing on the corner. I told my partner, is that something there? I pointed to the figure that I can now see he was a taller man, standing with his head to the ground. She looked around for a bit before shaking her head and concluding it was probably just a homeless man. We drove off. I looked out the window as we passed. He turned his head and watched as we drove off. I thought it was weird, but not weird enough to get involved. We kept on driving when we got a call on the radio. 5,150 on South and Boulevard. My partner picked up the radio and told him we'd be on the way. I faintly remembered the 5,150 from training. It had something to do with the crazies. We took a turn to get there faster, and in less time than I'd imagined, we pulled into the house and property they described over the radio. Loaded our weapons, exiting the car. I looked around again. A very quick scan of the neighborhood. That's when on the corner opposite of the one we had come in, I saw him again. The man from earlier looking down at the floor. I tapped my partner and motioned towards him. She looked at him and I can tell she was just as confused as I was. She whispered to me, you get in the house. I'll go talk to him. I nodded, heading into the house. It was huge, and to my knowledge, abandoned. Hello, it's the police. Is anybody there? Just then, from a heap on the floor, I heard somebody speak. You need to leave now. Go. It was coming from a man holding a wound on his side and bleeding badly. Sir, who did this to you? I asked, flashing the flashlight in his direction. Get out! Get your partner and get out of here before he gets mad, he said, fear audibly in his voice. Who gets here? I responded, hearing a little bit of fear in my own voice. He opened his mouth, but before he could speak, there was a gunshot that got both of our attention. I ran outside to see my partner now face down. The man she was talking to was nowhere to be found. I rushed out to her side, kneeling down beside her, flipping her over before checking her pulse. I felt nothing. To show her respect, I closed her eyes before setting her back down. Unholstering my weapon, I walked back into the house, aiming it. But to my surprise, the now bleeding man was not there. The house was empty, and his spot was a streak of blood heading out the back door, which I saw now had been busted open. I ran through, looking around. There, at the corner of the fence, stood the tall man looking down. All right, you freak. Hands up. He didn't move. It's like my badge and gun meant nothing to him. He did not fear me. What are you? Hard of hearing, I said. Put your hands up, trying to make my voice sound more macho now. And that's how we're playing it, I said, fed up. One. And two. Before I could get to three, he turned to me, looking at me. What I saw made me drop my weapon. His stare felt cold, but he could not be staring at me. There were two empty spots on his face where his eyes would usually go. 
I stumbled backwards into the house, nearly losing my balance, but catching myself in the sink, vomiting a bit. I was still shaken up by everything that's happened. It all happened so quickly. I stood over the sink, waiting for the urge to vomit to make a reappearance, and I'd heard footsteps approaching. It was the man I saw before. He came in, wiping the blood from his shirt. He was not injured at all. I'm sorry, it was truly nothing personal, he claimed with a smug smirk on his face. You see, my boy has this craving for human flesh, and a boy's gotta eat, he continued to walk towards me. What is wrong with his eyes? I said frantically, considering I was more than likely going to die. He was born without them. Doctors can't explain it, but my boy didn't let it get him down. He doesn't need eyes. He goes by his hearing and his smell. He looked out the door, and here he comes now. I knew what was coming, just thinking about that freakishly tall, eyeless man, and my partner made me sick. I vomited all over the man and myself. He took a step back and called me a disgusting fool, explained to me there would be no mercy, and I ran as fast as I could, grabbing my radio and calling for backup immediately. I actually had to drive down the street to try and hide from this person until my backup arrived. He and his son were detained, and as it turns out, he had actually cut out his son's eyes as a part of some sort of sick, satanic, sadistic cult, and fed him H-flesh his entire life, treating him like a wild animal. As far as I know, him and his son are still serving time in prison. Nineteen forty-two. My sister Clara and I were thrilled to be spending time with our family at Medibamp's Lake. Our parents and uncles had taken us on a week-long fishing trip, and we couldn't have been happier. The lake was a beautiful, serene escape from the world, and we eagerly embraced the opportunity to fish for smallmouth bass from the rocky island near our campsite. Each evening, as the sun began to set, Claire and I would head out to the island with our fishing gear, eagerly anticipating the catch we would bring back to our family. The island was a magical place, with its rugged rocks and the sound of water lapping against the shore. It was there that we felt closest to nature and the wonders it held. One night, as we sat on the rocks with our lines cast out into the water, we heard a strange howling noise echoing across the lake. It was unlike anything we had ever heard before. A melodious singing from someone with a husky voice, haunting and beautiful. Claire and I exchanged puzzled glances, unsure of what could be making such a sound. The singing continued for several minutes before it abruptly stopped, leaving us even more curious and a little unnerved. We decided to pack up our gear and head back to camp, eager to share our strange experience with our family. The following evening, Claire and I returned to the island, unable to resist the lure of the lake and the chance to catch more fish. As we sat on the rocks, the sun setting behind us, we once again heard the eerie singing. This time, however, we were not alone. From the shadows of the island's trees, two enormous hair-covered giants emerged, their eyes fixed on us with an unsettling intensity. They stood at least eight feet tall, their bodies covered in thick, matted hair, and their faces a mix of human and animal features. Frozen with fear, we watched as the giants approached us, their hands outstretched towards our bucket of fish. Without a word, they took the fish their eyes never leaving ours, and then disappeared back into the shadows from which they had come. Claire and I sat in stunned silence, our hearts pounding in our chests. What had we just witnessed? Were these creatures some sort of undiscovered species, or perhaps beings from another world? We couldn't begin to fathom the answers to our questions. We returned to our campsite, our story spilling out in a jumble of excited and frightened words. Our family listened with a mix of skepticism and concern, unsure of what to make of our tale. In the years that followed, the memory of that night remained etched in our minds, a reminder of the mysteries that still lurked in the world. Our encounter with the hair-covered giants would remain one of the most extraordinary experiences of our lives, a moment when the veil between the known and the unknown was briefly lifted, revealing the incredible possibilities that lay beyond. 1945. 
This took place last year at the beginning of summer. I was with my mom headed down to my Nana's farm to visit for a weekend. For some context, she lives on a farm way back in the country, right at the foot of a mountain in rural South Carolina. It's a very rural, secluded area, so the roads are badly maintained and barely wide enough for two cars to pass one another. The houses are also spread out and set far back into the tree line from the road, so there's very little ambient light besides the headlights of a car. So my mom and I are driving along, her in the driver's seat and me in passenger. It was around 11 p.m., and we're 15 minutes out from Nana's, deep in the woods with the radio, down almost to silent. We come onto this straight stretch of the road in a heavily wooded area, and suddenly this blur of a creature darts out across the road, right at the edge of our headlights. It was moving pretty good, but both me and my mom were able to get a good look at it and both agree on what we saw. It was a fairly large creature, roughly the size of a person bigger. Neither of us could make out the head, but we both remember it appearing to have a segmented body. My mom's words, as if it were emaciated and its rib cage was poking out. The reflection of light made it hard for me to tell color, but my mom said she remembered it to be dark and she didn't see fur. It had long limbs, and as it moved across the road, it didn't run the way a dog or horse would with all four legs. The best word to describe it would be loping, using its front limbs to pull itself along, and it was moving considerably fast. We both said something along the lines of what the hell is that, as it crossed in front of us. As we got up to where it had crossed, I turned to look at it just as it reached the other side of the road and out of our headlights. And I swear on my life, it stood up and ran. Not like a dog rearing on its hind legs. It was definitely bipedal. I immediately yelled that it had stood up and we both started getting nervous. I honestly would have thought I was going insane had I not had another person in the car with me. My mom has always been a pretty level-headed person and not superstitious, but she was very nervous and made me agree to not tell my nana about it to avoid scaring her, which made me recognize how serious this was. I should also mention that there had apparently been a series of attacks on livestock horses in the area around the time this happened. People were saying they found wire fences ripped through and their animals attacked, I don't think any died, but if I remember correctly, there were a few horses that were severely wounded. There have been a few other strange instances in the area, but that was my personal experience. When my dad was a kid, he and my grandpa went to my grandpa's land to prepare the soil for planting crops. Bored, my dad wandered off to a nearby stream where he saw a bunch of human, like dolls, playing around in the water. He said they looked like adults, only smaller. With proportions like dolls, not sure what exactly that means. They splashed around in the water, and at times it looked like they were even walking on it. They signaled at him to come and play with them, and my dad ran over excitedly. He said he played with him for a while when my grandpa noticed that he had wandered off and went to find him. When my grandpa found my dad seemingly playing alone by the stream getting all wet, he got super mad and dragged him away. Apparently my grandpa and grandma were never able to the duendies whenever my dad would point them out. My dad still recalls looking back while my grandpa yanked him away and seeing the duendies waving goodbye at him. After that, my dad started seeing the duendies around the house. They'd pop out from behind walls during dinner, and my dad would try to feed them scraps of food, much to my grandparents' annoyance. Eventually, they got worried and took him to a local carandera. She did a little ritual and told him to keep a cigarette behind his ear for a week, and then the duendies were gone. He never saw them again. My dad swears it's all true, even though no one believes him and he's embarrassed about even telling the story. The only reason he told me it was because my mom teased him about it the other day and I forced it out of him. I love these kinds of stories and really wanted to share. If you have any duenda stories, please share. I'd love to hear them. My aunts and uncles say duendes aren't always so friendly and told me some other creepy stories about them.
I've woken up a few times in the middle of the night for no reason with my heart racing. There's no feeling of dread, though. Prior to this, I was being woken up by something actually making noises to wake me up. The first time was when I was sleeping, and I started hearing something tapping on my metal bed frame. I woke up but hadn't opened my eyes or moved yet, and I heard what sounded like a coin or something metal tapping my bed frame on what I think was the leg closest to my head to the left of the bed. It went something like tap, 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 tap. Taws, tap, 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 tap. It was definitely not rhythmic and like it was intentional. Something was trying to wake me up. I sat up in bed and it stopped. Another night I heard something tapping on my glass vanity table. Like it picked something up from my table and started tapping. As soon as I moved it stopped. This was actually my childhood home that I moved back into with my family and my parents moved to the house next door. It was never haunted as a child. I had just moved into this house from my house next door that my parents owned, and that house was haunted. Did it follow me to the house next door? I don't know. But one night after the fifth time of waking up for no reason and my heart racing, I did something. This might sound odd, but this is what I experienced. I don't know why I did this, but I imagined I had a bright white light of protection in my center that grew around me. I imagined it getting bigger and bigger and pushing anything, entity, away. I think I made this protection field expand and encompass my house. When I did this, I felt such peace. The feeling I felt was indescribable. I felt light, warm, peaceful, not scared, and drifted off to sleep in a couple minutes, whereas before, when I would wake up like this, it would take me hours to calm down and go back to sleep. If somebody would have told me this story of the protective white light, I would most likely be skeptical because I've never heard of it. I googled protective white light, and it's actually a thing. I don't know what made me do that, but it helped. By the way, this is just a small portion of what's happened to me. When I lived in the other house, a whole lot of stuff happened. I have a chilling story to tell you. It all starts back in the 1986 or 1987 Pennsylvania bow season. I've been after a big buck all season, maybe a 185, 190 class buck, walking the creek bottom for some time in the hemlocks and it was getting dark in them, so I made it to a clearing about half a mile. I saw a few deer and a couple small bucks, not what I was looking for. I was walking back to my truck next to a farm, and I had a feeling that something wasn't right, so I turned around, and I thought there's a bear there about eight yards from me. I was standing along a cornfield, and it was in the cut oats field. I had the wind in my face. That's when I knew something was in the field. The animal stood up and started to walk toward me. It was about 35 or 40 yards from me now. I said out loud, Do not make me use this bow. It stopped, turned around, and walked away from me. It looked like a large logger, and it walked in the cut oats field, then in the tall field of corn. I did not let the grass grow under my feet. The next day, I went back to the spot where he was in the cutouts. I could not walk in the tracks, and where it enters the core was nine feet tall, so that made him eight feet tall and smaller than the corn. T.S., when I got home, my wife said I was white as a cloud and my eyes were as big as a plate. I am from Waterville, Maine. Back in the late summer or early fall of 1970, when I was newly married and living in Killian, Texas with my husband who was in the U.S. Army, we had a small duplex apartment in Killian. One night he had duty, and I was home alone in bed around 3 a.m. in the morning. I woke up suddenly and saw a black figure standing at the bottom of my bed. It was eight or nine feet tall and had huge big black wings and red eyes. I closed my eyes and opened them again, and it had moved closer to me on the right side of my bed. I couldn't scream. It was as if I was frozen in fear. I covered my head in the blankets. I was so afraid. About five minutes later, I looked, and it was gone. It gave me a horrible feeling, and I prayed never to see it again. 
Shortly after this event, I came back to Maine as I was way too frightened to ever stay alone at night when he was on duty. I told my mom I'd seen a huge black angel that night and she was glad I came home, as that didn't sound good. I had never heard of the Mothman, but a few years later I came across an article and a drawing of one. Even before I read the article, I said, wow, that is exactly what I saw in Texas. It didn't have a noticeable neck, and its face was hooded, its wings tucked in on its side, but you could tell they were very large. It was totally black, except the eyes were round, large and red. I still think of this thing with fear. Personally, do you have any idea what it is? I'm 57 now, and I'm still searching for an answer. P.S.C. The apartment I lived in had a well in the entranceway that always gave me the creeps. A cistern, I believe it is called. Just a flat rock covered it, and it still had water in it. I couldn't see the water, but I heard the plop when I dropped a rock in it. This probably has nothing to do with any of this, but felt I should tell you anyways. A bad storm had just passed through Burlington County when Officer A.J. Quinn spotted something hovering over Route 130, which runs between Burlington and Bordentown. On June 20th at approximately 6.40 p.m., I was traveling on Route 563 south of Chatsworth near the Franklin Parker Reserve Speedwell entrance. I was looking to see what the parking situation there was for future hikes, so my eyes were on the right side of the road. Out of the periphery, I saw what I thought was a groundhog on the left. At least it looked like it. It was very large. I realized it would have been huge for one to be like that. So the size I saw was roughly four feet tall, standing on two legs. It reminded me physically of a groundhog. I did not get a good look at the face, and I almost continued to decide to turn around about 150 yards up on a dirt road to the right. I pulled in, turned around, and headed back to that location. There's a bend in the road there. It bends around to the right, and on the way back, as I made it past the bend, approximately 30 yards in front of me, the creature was still there. It was now fully turned towards me. I could see that it looked like a cross between Curious George and the character Chaka from The Land of the Lost. Its face and hands, as well as the tops of its feet, were hairless and light tan in color. The fur it was covered with was golden brown, a little darker than a golden retriever, very much like the color of a groundhog. I could not see the nose. When I locked eyes with it, I could see just the whites. I stood there for a second or two when I rounded the bend, and then it took off, passing back into the swampy area. It ducked behind a short bush when I drove past it. I could no longer see it. I turned the car around yet again, and when I went by a second time, it was gone. I waited there a bit to see if I could see anything moving in the field. I couldn't, so I considered it done and took off. It was a couple of days before I shared the experience with my family and friends. In that period of time, I thought for sure somebody was going to report a missing kid in a Halloween costume. When the thing took off running, it was fast. I would describe it as the fastest kid on the 10-12 baseball team. We had really bad storms that night, and my commute was a disaster. It poured all through that area, and I thought it was odd that the thing I saw appeared to be dry. At least its fur was, which would lead me to believe it was under some sort of covering or underground. Of course, there are always skeptics out there suggesting this type of ferocious cryptid is just some innocent child dressed up in a puffy Halloween costume on Hallow's Eve. But why would it be out there, of all places? Or maybe Officer A.J. Quinn simply mistook an actual groundhog for something bipedal. Unfortunately for those skeptics and doubters, A.J. Quinn is a legitimate officer who was on duty at the time of the sighting and has never been known to mislead. Over the years, there have been reports of other sightings in this area of Bordentown, New Jersey, where the creature is said to dwell. My name is Etu, 
which in our Apache language means sun. I was named for the light and warmth I brought to my tribe, nestled deep within the verdant expanse of the Pacific Northwest. I was a boy of the woods, raised on the songs of the wind and the stories of the ancients. But the woods began whispering a different tale, one steeped in darkness and dread. It all started with a dream. In my dreams I was pursued by a wendigo, a mythical creature from the legends of tribes far to our east. The wendigo was a symbol of gluttony and excess, a beast that fed on flesh and had an insatiable hunger. I would wake up drenched in sweat, the wendigo's blood-curdling roar still ringing in my ears. Soon reality began to mirror my nightmares. Hunters from our tribe ventured into the woods and never returned. Wild animals were found mutilated, their bodies grotesquely mangled. An eerie cry would echo through the night, chilling us to our bones. I tried to warn the tribe's elders, recounting my dreams and the strange happenings. But they dismissed me, attributing my fears to the overactive imagination of a boy. I knew I had to do something. I dove into our ancient tribal lore, reading every scroll, deciphering every symbol. I trained, strengthening my body and mind, learning the ways of the hunter, the wisdom of the tracker. I was determined to face the Wendigo and protect my people. One fateful night, under the light of the full moon, I ventured deep into the heart of the woods. I could feel the Wendigo's presence, a palpable dread that hung in the air. The showdown was brutal, a dance of death between a boy and a beast. But I had the strength of my ancestors, the love of my tribe, and the courage that could only come from knowing what was at stake. I fought the Wendigo with every ounce of my being, using the knowledge and skills I had gained from our ancient tribal lore. The battle raged on for what seemed like hours. The Wendigo's strength was immense, but I was relentless. I evaded its deadly claws and piercing fangs, striking back with my own fierce determination. With a final desperate lunge, I drove my spear deep into the heart of the creature. As the Wendigo fell, its body began to dissolve into the air. Like mist vanishing in the sunlight, the creature's deathly cries faded into the night, leaving behind only silence and a profound sense of relief. The beast was defeated, and I had saved my Apache tribe. I returned to my people, bearing the tale of my victory. The elders finally listened, their eyes wide with awe and respect. They recognized the truth of my words, and the strength of my words, and the strength of my spirit. I was no longer just Etu, the boy named for the sun. I had become a warrior, a guardian of my tribe, and a living legend among my people. With the Wendigo gone, peace and harmony were restored to our tribe in the woods. The hunters returned to their task. Wild animals roamed without fear, and the eerie cries that once haunted the night were silenced forever. We could finally live in peace, safe in the knowledge that the Wendigo had been vanquished and that our tribe was protected by one of its own. I'm Dr. James Reed, an anthropologist with an insatiable curiosity about the rich tapestry of human culture. One day, my thirst for knowledge led me to the isolated lands of a Native American tribe nestled in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. I was there to learn, to observe their unique culture and unravel their folklore. As I immersed myself in their world, I heard whispers of a guardian spirit, a creature resembling the legendary Bigfoot. This creature, they believed, was a protector of their lands, a revered figure in their folklore. I listened with intrigue, fascinated by the tribe's profound connection with nature. Before long, a mining company began prospecting in the nearby hills, their heavy machinery sending tremors through the quiet mountain range. As the machines crept closer to the sacred lands, the guardian spirits started manifesting in inexplicable, terrifying ways. The machines were destroyed, miners scared away by the sight of the massive creature. The tribe was convinced. It was their guardian spirit defending the sacred lands. But I was torn, caught between my rational scientific beliefs and the mystical world the tribe lived in. 
The mining company was relentless, and the tribe's way of life was under threat. The peaceful harmony of the tribe was being replaced with fear and unrest. I knew I had to do something. Setting aside my skepticism, I decided to join forces with the tribe. We researched old tribal legends, sought the counsel of the elders, and ventured deep into the sacred groves. The more I delved into the tribe's spiritual world, the more I began to question my own rigid beliefs. In the end, it was a battle, not just for the tribe's sacred land, but also for their way of life. We managed to convince the mining company to stop their operations, but not without a few close encounters with the guardian spirit, encounters that I still struggled to explain rationally. I left the Appalachian Mountains with more questions than answers. The experience had forever blurred the lines between my scientific pursuits and the mystical world of the tribe. But one thing was clear. There were forces at work far beyond our understanding, forces that demanded respect and reverence, and sometimes protecting what's sacred required more than just logic and reason. This incident was relayed to me by my dad just a few years ago. My dad is a very level-headed, grounded man. He said he didn't say anything to anyone for a while because he wanted to keep this incredible experience to himself. My father lives in Southern California and was up visiting my stepmother's, his wife's mother and father. Grandpa was dying and I guess dad just needed some time alone, so he decided to take a walk. It was a pleasant day, not too hot just perfect for a hike. Dad said he had never taken this direction before, but that he had decided to try it this time. He said he had been walking uphill for some time just enjoying the sights and fresh air when he decided he needed a rest. He saw a downed log on the side of the road, the side that goes down towards the river, when he heard a very unusual sound. He described it as almost a scolding sound, a tut combined with a whistle. Immediately, he became very still, and the hair on the back of his neck stood up. He also reported goosebumps. He said this noise was repeated again, and he said there was no mistaking the meaning. He had to leave the area fast. He said he got up and looked around, all while moving away from the area heading downhill toward home, which was a good two miles away. He said he moved at a fairly good pace, but did not dare run. He said this was all kind of a sixth sense kind of thing inborn, you might say. The noise was never repeated. He was not followed either. My best friend Vinny and I were out riding our motor scooter on a beautiful sunny day. We had been coasting downhill when the road started to rise, so we kicked on the motor. Approaching a level overlook area of a clear cut about the size of two football fields, before us, at the far end of the field, down below near the trees, something astonishing caught our eyes. A massive creature arose from a fetal sleeping position. It was a Bigfoot. It looked straight at us before swiftly heading south with its arms swinging. As it passed a stump, it took one giant step up into the forest and disappeared from view. We almost fell off our scooter scrambling to grab our camera and binoculars while trying to process what we had just witnessed. The creature was huge, with a flat face that clearly wasn't a gorilla. Vinny insisted that we explore the area, so we carefully walked down several feet of clear-cut debris to the spot where the Bigfoot had been sleeping. All we found were impressions where the creature had been lying down, but nothing else. We noticed that the stump it had passed was eight feet tall and the creature had been chest high over it. The single step it took into the forest was at least three feet tall. We were both in awe and terrified at the same time. It was October 1993 and my cousin Jane and I were excited to embark on an elk hunting trip on Vinegar Hill. The area was known for its abundance of elk, and we were hoping to bag a big one. Little did we know that our hunting trip would turn into an unforgettable adventure. As we trekked along the creek, we came across a large, muddy spot. 
To our surprise, we found five enormous Bigfoot tracks leading into the mud. Each track measured 20 inches long, and they were spaced far apart. Jane and I exchanged puzzled glances, wondering if what we were seeing was real. The following year, during elk bow hunting season, we found ourselves back in the same area. The memory of the Bigfoot tracks still fresh in our minds. We couldn't help but feel a little uneasy. As we hunted in the daylight around 2 p.m., we suddenly heard a loud, piercing ache, sound echoing through the forest. Startled, we both dashed back to camp, our hearts pounding. At sunset, a friend Jeremy joined us at camp. As we discussed the day's events, Jeremy noticed movement by a bush in between three trees. He squinted, trying to make out what he was seeing. In the fading light, he saw a dark, shaded figure moving through the trees. It was tall, around six and a half to seven feet, and walked upright like a human. At first, Jeremy thought it might be his brother, but as the figure disappeared into the woods, he realized it was something else entirely. We couldn't help but think back to the Bigfoot tracks we had found the previous year. Could it be that we had just seen the elusive creature responsible for those massive footprints? We later learned that the area was honeycombed with mines, raising the question of whether these creatures used them as shelter. Though we never had another encounter with the mysterious figure, our elk hunting trips on Vinegar Hill would forever be tinted with a sense of wonder and curiosity about the legendary Bigfoot. While on a deer hunting trip, my father stopped the vehicle on the side of the road to have lunch. As myself and my three brothers ate, I noticed movement several hundred yards away, out of my peripheral vision. I realized that something was up in a tree, near the very top of a huge pine tree where the branches are just beginning to grow, at the edge of the timber-cutting area. The area had just recently been logged. I looked at it with binoculars and was frightened when I realized that it was not a bear, but a huge man-like creature picking something from the treetop. I looked at it for several minutes. It was very dark brown and had its legs and at least one arm wrapped around the tree. It kept reaching up and grabbing stuff like it was collecting something. Then suddenly it turned to look in my direction when I saw the face very clearly. It had no hair near the eyes and nose, which looked humanoid and definitely did not have a snout like a bear at all. Then it did a double look, then realized that we were watching it, and without any notice just pushed itself away from the tree, and free fell at least sixty feet to the ground, with its feet and body staying in the prone position all the way. When it landed, it made a very loud crashing sound into the freshly logged clear cut. My father screamed at us to hurry and get into the vehicle, and we drove away fast, and he never talked about it to me again. My brothers did not see it because they were looking in the wrong direction with their binoculars. Very spooky, though. I had just finished a long walk through the forest. The smell of decomposing leaves filled the air, but suddenly I caught a whiff of something far more pungent. It was like a rotting animal carcass. As the smell intensified, I couldn't shake off the feeling that I was being watched. As I walked down our dirt driveway, I heard a deep snort, like a huffing noise. It reminded me of the sound a horse makes when it wants your attention. Intrigued, I looked around and saw a large male Bigfoot standing there, staring right at me. I was both fascinated and terrified at the same time. With my heart pounding, I took a cautious step, and to my amazement, the Bigfoot mirrored my movement. This continued for about five minutes, with the creature copying my every action. Feeling a mix of excitement and fear, I decided to run back to my house to grab a camera. As I fumbled to find my camera, I thought about the park ranger, who had been a friend and confidant for years. He had shared numerous stories about unusual sightings and unexplained phenomena in the forest. I couldn't wait to tell him about my encounter and show him the evidence, but when I finally stepped outside, camera in hand, the Bigfoot was gone. Disappointed but still eager to share my story, I went to the ranger station and relayed my experience to him. 
The park ranger listened intently, his eyes widening with each detail I shared. He told me that there had been other reports of similar encounters in the area, and my story only added to the growing mystery. Together we went back to the spot where I had seen the Bigfoot, but there was no trace of the creature. The park ranger promised to keep an eye out for any future sightings and urged me to do the same. From that day on, every time I ventured into the forest, I couldn't help but hope for another chance encounter with the elusive Bigfoot. In the summer of 1999, my cousin and I decided to embark on an exciting adventure near Timothy Lake, Oregon. Both of us had always been fascinated by nature, and we were eager to explore the backside of the lake and look for any signs of wildlife. Armed with nothing but a .22 rifle for protection, we ventured off the main trail and began our exploration. Our main focus was to find bear signs, which had been reported in the area. As we delved deeper into the forest, we stumbled upon a log that appeared to have been torn apart. This was exactly the kind of evidence we were hoping to find. As we examined the area further, however, we discovered something even more intriguing. A series of human-like tracks stretching for about 50 feet. What caught our attention was the enormous stride between each step, nearly 8 feet apart. We couldn't believe what we were seeing and started to wonder if these tracks could be the work of a Sasquatch, a creature we had heard stories about but never truly believed existed. Unsure of what to make of our discovery, we decided to head back to camp and share our findings with our uncle. As an experienced outdoorsman, we believed he might be able to shed some light on the mysterious tracks. To our surprise, he was just as intrigued as we were and agreed to come and take a look for himself. Upon examining the tracks, our uncle couldn't hide his astonishment. He, too, began to entertain the idea that a Sasquatch might be responsible for the footprints. The thought that we could have stumbled upon evidence of such a legendary creature left us all feeling a mix of excitement and fear. Over the years, our encounter near Timothy Lake has remained a topic of conversation within our family. The mysterious tracks continued to pique our curiosity, and we can't help but wonder if we had indeed crossed paths with a Sasquatch that day. While we may never know for sure, the experience taught us that the natural world still holds many secrets, waiting to be discovered by those daring enough to explore its depths. To give you an idea of why I was out in the middle of the woods at midnight, I run cross-country collegiately. This means that I'm supposed to run every single day, ten miles a day, and I can be particularly lazy about this. When you've been doing it for seven years, it gets old quick. So more often than not, my roommate and myself will put off our run until late because we struggle to find the strength during the rest of the day. Well, it turns out that we picked the wrong night to be lazy. As 11 p.m. starts to roll around, I told my roommate, Matt, that we need to get our miles out of the way. He agreed, and we both lace up, grabbed our flashlights, and left our dorm. We live on a decent-sized campus with a lot of woods on the back of it and a full-size golf course, so we decided to run on the trails out there. At night, it is pitch black and can be hard to see the path even with flashlights, but it breaks the monotony of running the same routes and we happened to like the adrenaline of being creeped out. So we began our run and started heading towards the woods. Instead of taking the normal trail that leads right through the middle of the golf course, we elected to take a different entrance, and eventually we realized we were lost. It was still possible to see the clock tower on campus from where we were, and so we knew we just had to head in that direction to get home. I wasn't too sure of how to get there from the course path, so we just stopped our run and walked directly through the woods and trees until we ended up on another green of the course that I have never been to before. While we were trying to get our bearings, I noticed a flickering light in the distance. I asked Matt if he saw it also, and he just nodded as we both stared. Slowly but surely, this light got closer and closer. It wasn't long until we realized it was another flashlight from someone on the trail. As I watched the light bob up and down, I began to comprehend what this meant. 
We weren't alone out here. That didn't make any sense, though. It's almost midnight. Why would someone be five miles into the middle of the golf course at this time? Why are they alone? What could they possibly be doing? We were sure it wasn't maintenance because the maintenance building shuts down at 5 p.m. and they wear bright green to give notice to golfers. Safety reasons. Soon enough, the silhouette of a tall man came into view and the distance between us and him was only brought down to 50 feet or so. He stopped dead in his tracks and we just continued to stare. This really only lasted a minute, but it felt like forever. The man did not seem phased by us and started walking towards us, but then made a quick turn to the right, which was where the green ended, and the woods began, uphill at that. Right before he entered the woods, he turned back to face us. As he did this, he shined his flashlight up at our faces, the kind of way you do to blind someone, and all we heard was the massive footsteps of this guy sprinting and the heaving of his breath. With that very moment, we took off. Let me tell you, I have never ran that fast in my entire life, even being a collegiate runner. We ran and ran and never looked back until we made it to the street that our campus begins on. I don't know what that man wanted or why he was in the woods so late, but he clearly intended harm to us. This isn't our first weird occurrence in the woods at school, so I may post more soon. One day, my best friend and I were taking a shortcut to her house. It goes past a few houses and through a small area of woods, crossing a two-feet-wide creek. This particular day, I was wearing one of those jackets that had earbuds as the string. I must have item as a fifth grader in 2010-11. As we were passing one of the houses, a couple big dogs come running from it, jumping on us and obviously just wanting to play, be petted. The owner of the house comes out, and I noticed right away that he was acting really fidgety and nervous, saying stuff about the dogs like, oh, it's okay, they're nice, don't worry. We made small talk with him about the dogs for a few minutes and turned around to leave. About a minute or so later, we arrived at the small creek when I noticed that one of the rubber earbuds that was on my jacket was gone, and I insisted on going back to look for it. The guy came back out again and offered to help us. He asked what the material was made of, and I said it was made of rubber. We made small talk again. I think about the jacket and how cool it was. Anyway, he said he was going to be right back with his metal detector. He walked away towards his shed, and I said to my friend, Why does he need a metal detector? The earbud is made of rubber. Next thing you know, he's coming back with, I shit you not, a rifle, and he is literally running towards us. When I'm telling you we ran, we ran. When we got to safety past the creek and near her house, I was telling her we needed to call 911. She insisted that we not do that because her parents would be mad at her. I explained to her with urgency why it's important we called the cops, but she refused and I couldn't force her. I didn't call because I didn't want to do it alone, plus it would have been my first time calling them. I can't remember when if I told my parents that night what happened. But when I told them, they gaslit me and said I was crazy overacting. But I didn't really see that. I still think about this damn near every day and it haunts me. The second time was, again, in fifth grade, taking place after the first story. But I'm not sure how long after. The friend from the previous story lived near a cemetery about a five-minute walk from her house. It was a big cemetery, and we liked to walk around it a lot. Plus, behind the cemetery was a shortcut through the woods to a big park, which was coincidentally right next to our school. This day, we were also with another good friend of ours. We were just walking around the cemetery this day when, all of a sudden, a blue truck pulls up next to us in the row next to where we were walking, about ten feet away or so, not far. I could see two guys were in it, literally just staring at us, and I again got that weird feeling I got with the first guy. This is hard to explain, but right before the shortcut in the woods is a fence with a cutout that leads to a field of grass and a hill next to it that leads into the neighborhood of where my other friend lived. The hill was really a bunch of dead grass, weeds, sticks, cattails, etc. 
Anyway, I told my friends I had a bad feeling about these guys, that they were staring at us and quite literally slowly following us with the truck. We booked it to that grass field and through that hill. I had all sorts of cuts and gashes from all the shit that we were running through. When we got to the top of the hill, we turned around, and the truck was parked at the top of the hill on the other side, with both men outside of it holding guns rifles. I truly believed they were coming after us, and they were visibly mad that we got away from them. I knew they were after us because they have had to have driven through the cutout in the fence amongst the gut feelings and just the entire situation. We ran to my friend's house and noticed her parents, who truly didn't seem too worried, and drove my other friend and me home. I don't even remember if I told my parents about this time since they gaslit me when I told them about the last time. I just can't shake the fact that this shit really happened when I was in fifth grade, then eleven years old. I also can't believe how lightly my parents took the situation. I'm honestly traumatized about what happened, and I think about it a lot. I just needed to tell some people what happened, but I have trouble getting my thoughts into words. It was the winter of 2020. I was driving north on Highway 21 at approximately 10.10 p.m., just outside of Hillsboro, Missouri, just past Jefferson College. I was just passing the northbound off-ramp from Hayden Road onto northbound Highway 21. At mile marker 169.6, I'm not sure of the day of the week. I worked the night shift every weekday and also worked the same shift every other weekend. So all of the nights just seemed to run together. I just remember it was very cold and the road was deserted. I was the only car in the north or southbound lanes for as far as I could see. This is the same route I've taken to work every night for the past eight plus years, so I know the road very well. The dash of my car showed the ambient temperature is only 20 degrees Fahrenheit, but standing outside it felt even colder. It was clear with no wind, rain, or snow. It was a clear, bitterly cold night. Just before mile marker 169.6, I noticed a rather tall, thin guy standing on the right-hand shoulder of the road under the streetlight. He stood facing me as I headed north. I slowed as I came upon him out of caution, but was not dumb enough to come to a complete stop. He was standing completely still, not walking or moving at all. I have seen other people walking along the side of this highway at night from time to time before so I did not think too much about seeing someone this night, other than the fact that this night was so bitterly cold. As I approached, he stood completely motionless. He was very poorly dressed for the cold. He was wearing only a dark-colored faded hoodie and dark-colored faded pants of some sort. I cannot remember if they were jeans or sweatpants. They had no holes or rips in them, but I remember that his whole appearance looked rather shabby. He had his head covered with a hoodie and kept his head pointed down enough so that I could not see his face. I could not see any sign of breath being exhaled into the bitterly cold night air from under his hoodie. This was really creepy. He stood there completely motionless with his hands hanging to his sides. I remember thinking to myself that if I were out in this kind of cold that was poorly dressed, I would certainly keep myself moving to try to stay warm. But this guy was standing completely motionless, not walking, not swinging his arms or moving his hands or fingers or legs at all. He stood completely still, like a statue. Another very odd thing was that he wore no gloves, so his fingers had to be freezing. He did not have either of his hands in his hoodie pocket or his pant pockets. For warmth, the hoodie seemed to fit his frame proportionally well, except the sleeves were too short. His arms were way too long for the sleeves. I could see maybe three, 3.5 inches of the bare forearm from the bottom of his hoodie cuff to the top of his hand, which looked odd. Everything else seemed to fit okay, but his arms were way too long for the sleeves. This guy was tall, compared to the mile marker sign which was behind him. I would say that he had to stand six foot, nine inches tall or more. As I slowly drove past him and watched him, it became one of those moments when time seemed to slow down. It was as if it all happened in slow motion. 
I can remember a lot of detail and how he just continued to stand there in the cold, completely motionless, as I drove past him, never turning his head or moving any part of his body in any way. After I passed him, I could still see him in my rearview mirror, standing there on the shoulder of the highway in the same spot illuminated by the streetlight above. He still remained there completely motionless, like a statue not moving at all his hands still hanging at his sides, his body completely motionless, not even a finger moved. I kept glancing into my rearview mirror to take another look at him until I rounded the corner and finally lost sight of him. I never saw him move the entire time. I got this rather ominous, dark, foreboding feeling as I passed him. If what I saw were some kind of ghost or demon or specter or whatever you want to call it, it certainly was not ghostly in appearance at all and looked as solid and as real as you or me. I still do not know what it is that I saw that night, but I hope I never see it again. It really freaked me out.